Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a team of cardiac surgeons explains what you and your loved ones need to know if you face cardiac surgery. We can now, in certain cases, do it on a beating heart, so we don't have to use the heart-lung machine. That affords quite a bit of advantages, especially neurologic advantages. A standardized patient tells about her role in helping to educate future doctors and other healthcare professionals. You just have to be very astute at learning the, the case materials that's presented in the training and also be able to present it in a standardized way. An Onondaga County official goes over the basics of Medicare and shares some ways to save money on coverage. There's also a program through the Medicare office called Medicare Savings Program, where the state would pay the Medicare Part B premium. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear how regular people are helping to educate the next generation of doctors and medical professionals. Then we'll learn all about Medicare, the government health insurance plan for senior citizens. But first, Two cardiac surgeons from Upstate explain what to expect if you or someone you love faces cardiac surgery. Heart disease is still the number one cause of death in the United States, and today we're going to talk about some of the surgical interventions that can save and improve people's lives. In the studio with me today are two cardiac surgeons from Upstate, Drs. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Pleasure. So I know... Um, Heart surgery, there have been a lot of changes and advances. Um, it's been offered since the 1960s. Correct. Can you tell me, kind of bring me up to speed on where we are now? Because when it started, it was a major undertaking. Several hours surgery, right? You know, heart surgery started in the um, late 50s, early 60s by accident for adults. Um, prior to that, it was just pediatric heart surgery that was being done. And How did it start by accident? Well, at the Cleveland Clinic, there was a cardiologist named Mason Sones, who was a big smoker. He used to smoke in the cath lab. He um, was doing a heart cath, and the fellows used to do the heart caths, and he was doing it on a, on a baby, and um, everybody avoided engaging the catheter into the left main coronary artery because they were afraid if anything happened, because that's main blood supply to the heart, the patient would die. And so inadvertently, without them recognizing it, the catheter got lodged in the left main, they injected the dye, and all of a sudden, nothing happened to the patient, but they could see the entire arterial tree. And that started the whole process. And then there was a surgeon, Rene Favolero, who did the first bypass um, uh, grafting using a piece of vein in an adult for a blockage in the coronary. Um, uh, from the aorta to beyond the blockage on the coronary artery. And that's how adult coronary artery uh, surgery started. Wow, and it's just taken off from there. Correct. Wow, interesting. Well, um, these days you might not have to open a patient's chest to do the surgery, right? Right, so, um, you know, um, even, even today we still use the heart-lung machine quite a bit in, um, for... Um, uh, doing all kinds of heart 
operations, including um, bypass surgery. Um, but we've gotten to the point where we can now, in certain cases, do it on a beating heart, so we don't have to use the heart-lung machine. And um, that affords quite a bit of um, advantages, especially neurologic advantages, because you know sometimes the large artery in the in the in the body that comes out of the heart called the aorta gets calcified, and um, so that, that means it's stiffened. Yeah, it's like a concrete pipe with cholesterol and plaque, okay. and and if you manipulate that, that can sometimes break off and cause um, injury to organs like the brain. Um, so if you avoid manipulating it like you do it with a beating heart, then you reduce that a little bit. And, um, you know, I've seen um, in personal experience that patients bounce back a little quicker um, because you avoid the pump run. Uh, so that there are some advantages to that. Um, going one step further, we can now do that with um, minimally invasive techniques, um, particularly using um, the da Vinci robot and um, with three little holes in your chest and a little incision underneath your breast, we can uh, do at least two uh, bypasses uh, to the front of the heart that way. Interesting. Well, I want to, you said the term, you know, beating heart surgery, and I, I have a vision of what that's like, but can you tell me more about how that works? Sure. Um, uh, so it's just as it sounds. We never stop the heart. Routinely, to, in order to do heart surgery, we want a still heart, and we have to arrest the heart and protect the heart uh, with the patient on the heart-lung machine in order to do that. Um, but in this case, we, we've developed methods in which we isolate a portion of the heart that we want to work on and um, keep that relatively still and let the heart do its job. Interesting. And you're able to suture and everything. Well, yeah, yeah. Interesting. The, the alternative, Amber, uh, is using a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, as Dr. Sandu, Sandu stated initially. Um, that uh, device really permitted us to take the first cardiac surgery through to where we are right now in the different iterations of evolution of that device. Really has brought us to a point where we can do extremely complex surgical procedures on the heart. And um, at, although there is an opportunity to use a stabilizing system and not use a cardiopulmonary bypass machine to do coronary bypass operations, um, some of the most complicated things we do still requires cardiopulmonary bypass in that in that tool. Um, Many of the studies that look at performing on-pump versus off-pump coronary artery bypass grafting surgery have failed to reveal any real substantive benefit. I mean, we have, we have uh, uh, learned colleagues on both sides that have preferences as to using it or not using it to achieve uh, coronary bypass. Um, but at the same rate, it's it's a tool that the risk has gone down substantially. There were there was there was a great deal of conversation in the early 2000s about the consequences uh, to neurocognitive function being on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and that means that means uh, using that tool to artificially supply circulation and oxygenation to the body during the time that we have the heart stopped to operate on it. That something was happening to patients in their uh, their uh, neurologic uh, function after being on a heart-lung machine was different. And the truth there is that none of those studies um, have ever 
come out revealing uh, time after time that there's any difference at all. So the point is, it's it's a much safer tool that we use now than, than we originally used back, obviously, in the 60s and 70s. Most notably, the number of filters that we put on the machine to make sure that what's going back into the patient's body is just their blood with no platelet aggregates or fibrin aggregates or small uh, piece of material that can that can uh, get lodged in smaller circulations like the brain and cause these effects. So, so how do you decide if a patient, if you're going to do an operation on pump or off, and does the patient have any say or, or not? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, for me, I think, um, you know, the 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 decision to do it off pump really depends on the patient's condition. So there are patients that um, are much higher risk uh, for being on the heart-lung machine um, or cardiopulmonary bypass. Uh, for example, those patients with um, a very poor lung function um, that you don't want to use too much fluid uh, to um, oversaturate the lungs, and um, that would be a patient that I would definitely consider for off-pump surgery. Also, um, patients that you know before surgery, you're going to run into the problem with the calcified aorta, which we talked about before. Um, I would I would consider um, off-pump surgery in those cases. But remember, off-pump surgery is limited only to bypass grafting okay. and not to other types of heart surgeries like valve surgeries where we really do need um, cardiopulmonary bypass and um, uh, arresting the heart. I do think your question's a good one, Amber. I mean, Akila answers the question, I have a certain set of preferences um, in terms of patients that I see that I would use an off cardiopulmonary bypass technique versus using a heart-lung machine. But the question really is, you know, does a patient have a say in which technique uh, would be best for them? Interestingly, I do think that I have the same list of preferences where I may or may not use it. My list of preferences where I would not use it is an extremely small list. I pretty much use the heart-lung machine on every single patient. Um, but it, you know, now that I sit back and think about do I have that conversation with the patient to disclose that there are um, possibilities of not using the heart-lung machine, I, I, I suppose that I don't really have that conversation as much because, you know, when it comes down to having something like heart, heart surgery, any form of heart surgery, you really want to make sure the practitioner you've chosen is using the tools and the team and the institution that they think will provide the best outcome for the patient. And so it's, it's very much, I guess, now that I think about it, implied in the conversation that I have chosen to use the heart-lung machine without actually giving the patient a choice. So maybe I'll start doing things differently on Monday. <laughs> no, I think that, you know, I would echo what you're saying, Randy. Um, and I think it's more a, a tool than an actual um, um, necessary conversation. For example, you know, it's it's something in the armamentarium that we could use to better um, treat our patients. So we don't go into the details of exactly how we do the procedure, even in a regular procedure that now we're going to, you know, do this and then we're going to do that and then you'll be on the heart-lung machine and then we're going to take you off and then we're going to start the heart and then we're going to, you know, all that. Right. We don't go into those details when we talk to patients. Right. About well, mo the majority of your patients are correct. not cardiac and then, and then surgeons, this is so they're going to come right. in. Right, and so this is just one of those um, uh, detailed uh, part of that yeah. that um, uh, procedure that we make those decisions 
often on the fly. All right. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. They're cardiac surgeons here at Upstate. Uh, and Dr. Green, I wanted to ask uh, if you can tell us what you're doing for patients with atrial fibrillation. What right. are some of the options they have here at Upstate these days? Right. Well, uh, a little history. So atrial fibrillation affects just a great number of people that you know we see around town every single day. And, and so that's an irregular rhythm. Right. Rhythm. Right. So typically we we run around in what's called a normal sinus rhythm at about 80 beats a minute. Um, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that originates in our atrium and uh, has circuits uh, that are re-enter over and over to create a faster heart rate that is irregular and does not have the coordination of the top and bottom chamber of the heart. Um, the way to stop that, uh, m most frequently patients are treated with um, medications that either control the rate or the rhythm. Um, sometimes patients who have persistent atrial fibrillation and are symptomatic can undergo a catheter-based procedure to treat that irregular rhythm. That's done by a cardiologist called an electrophysiologist. Okay. And some patients who have highly symptomatic and resistant forms of atrial fibrillation uh, may be candidates for uh, a, a surgical procedure to treat the atrial fibrillation. And a few years ago, several years ago now, I uh, went out and learned a surgical technique that had a very high likelihood of getting patients back into atrial fibrillation, and it worked great. The problem was it was highly morbid. It meant requ it required general anesthesia. We had to take we had to make incisions in both the right and left chest under general anesthesia, and and use these special uh, tools to work behind the heart and create create burns in the heart, believe it or not, with radiofrequency energy to block these electrical circuits from going around and around to achieve a high rate of conversion back to a regular rhythm. That I did for years here in town, and it was, again, very effective, but the patients really suffered to get through it. So about a year and a half ago, I learned of a procedure called the convergent procedure that uh, allows us to make just a small incision below the uh, midline, uh, just in the upper portion of the abdomen. Above and that's the, the stomach. Uh, right, okay. right, right below the chest, and access the sac around the heart. And we introduce a catheter through that little incision into the sac around the heart, and we're able to create a series of uh, uh, of injury, uh, a series of injuries to the back of the heart that prevent these electrical rhythms from going around and around. The reason it's called the convergent procedure, though, is not is because we're working in conjunction with an electrophysiologist. So the cardiac surgeon will do the surgical portion of the procedure, creating a set of blockages on the back of the heart, and the patient goes right into the electrophysiology lab, where the electrophysiologist cardiologist performs a catheter-based procedure to treat the remaining portions of the left atrium where these rhythms can uh, re-enter with a catheter. So again, it's a way to draw on the expertise of a cardiac surgeon, accessing a part of the heart that the cardiologist finds difficult, and then uh, relying on the cardiologist's ability to access the part of the heart that the cardiac surgeon can't get to, and allow those two uh, professionals to merge their expertise to create a high level wow. of uh, of conversion to a regular rhythm for patients. How quickly does a patient see a difference? Many of them see it immediately. 
immediately. Uh, the patients can have periods where they go into and out of atrial fibrillation for up to a year. And we really don't call it a procedural success until one year comes around and the patient's in a normal rhythm. Tell me which type of patient this um, surgical procedure would be appropriate for. Not everyone that has AFib needs this, right? right. So. so most of the time the patients that we're operating on have been treated medically for a year or two and medical treatment has been unsuccessful. They've undergone at least one, sometimes as many as four or five catheter-based procedures to treat the atrial fibrillation and yet remain highly symptomatic. And so these are patients who are working age people in our community that can't go to work, they can't uh, carry on their activities of daily living and are really searching for a solution to a, to a otherwise resistant problem. Well, thank you so much. That's good information. I'm, I'm glad that patients have that um, available here in Syracuse. Um, my guests have been cardiac surgeons Dr. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how to become a standardized patient on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the ways future doctors and other healthcare providers learn is by practicing on people who pretend to be patients. They're called standardized patients, and they're trained to portray certain medical situations. Today, I'm talking with two people, um, Steve Harris, who's the director of Upstate's Clinical Skills Center, and Annette Adams-Brown, a standardized patient. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for being Amber. here. So I want to start with you, um, Steve, um, just asking you to give an overview of the standardized patient program. I know it's been part of the medical curriculum since about the 1960s. Is that right? Um, well, it, back in the, long before I was here in the 60s and 70s, there were some, some beginnings of standardized patient kind of work here at Upstate. Um, standardized patients in general have actually been around since the mid-1960s. Um, Howard Barrows, Dr. Howard Barrows, who was a neurologist in Southern California, uh, came up with the idea of what he called program patients, which were folks he could train. Actually, his secretary was the very first one. Her name was Rose. Um, Rose is the eve of standardized patients, okay. I suppose. Uh, she was the first person who Dr. Barrows actually taught her to have physical, to, to distrib display physical findings uh, for his neurology residents so they could practice on Rose and see what looked like realistic patient encounters with a patient who was trained to do exactly the way that Dr. Barrows wanted it and then give feedback to the students about it. And from those beginnings in 1964, 65, I think it was, it has now become um, international part of medical education everywhere. Pretty um, standard then. You'd, you'd be hard pressed to find a medical school in the United States or, or many, many other countries where there are, isn't some sort of standardized patient or simulated patient, which is the alternate term that's, that's sometimes used um, for what they do, which is basically simulate as realistic as we can possibly make them, patient encounters with medical learners, 
uh, whether they be medical students or nurse practitioner students or PA students or PT students or anybody else. Um, we also do stuff in our center with uh, some non-medical folks. We have uh, the clinical pastoral education. The chaplain interns come and do some simulations with us uh, where they see patients in a very different way than a medical person would. Sure. Um, we also have a, a collaboration that I've been doing for years with, this, with a professor at the School of Education at Syracuse University, a great collaboration between the two institutions with his pre-service teachers who come and they don't meet patients and do physical exams. They come and they meet parents, a simulated parent or a simulated student or a simulated colleague or community activist or whoever teachers might typically find themselves interacting with so they can practice and learn and develop their communication skills, which is really what we're all about is communication skills. So, and part of that is the re- receiving the immediate feedback, right? This is being observed and... Yeah, the, the you know, the, the standard, the word standardized in terms of standardized patients really comes from the fact that I can train eight people to be the same patient. And that way I can make sure that all of my students see the same patient or the same group of patients. And so when I'm evaluating them, I'm evaluating them in a standardized kind of way. But I think the other part of it, the other half of what we do, besides giving us the ability to, to compare apples with apples when we, when we evaluate our students, is it also gives us the opportunity to give them feedback from a perspective that no one else can give them. You know, I can watch a student interview a patient. Um, our, all of our faculty do that all the time, and they do it very well. And we can give them feedback from our expertise about communication skills, about what we saw as a third party, what we can't tell them and shouldn't try to tell them is how did that patient feel when you were when you were interacting with them? And folks like Annette and, and the great standardized patients all over the world, that's what they can do that nobody else can do. They're not here to tell students about the clinical stuff. That's not their job. That's the faculty's job. What they're here to say is, as the other person who was in the room interacting with you, this is how I felt. This is how you made me feel. And here are some things that maybe you could continue to do to continue to be a great communicator. And maybe some things that you might want to think about changing because they really weren't good communication with me. Well, let me ask Annette, um, what drew you to want to be a standardized patient? Well, actually, it was a fellow actor I saw one day that I hadn't seen in years. I performed with many years ago. He's also a veteran standardized patient. And I happened to see him in walking coming to the upstate standardized patient program. And I asked him, I said, hey, how have you been? He said, oh, I'm on my way to work up at the standardized patient program. And he told me about it and gave me the information. And that was almost 15 years ago. Oh, so you've been at this for 15 (laughs) years. Yes. Well, uh, do you have an acting background? I do. I do. My background is in theater production and acting. And I have a bachelor's in theater so this must be a natural, you must be a natural for this sort of role. Um, you know, they, we're trained to do what we do. As Steve said, we have to be standardized. So it does give me an opportunity to practice some of my acting skills in term of, terms of memorization, because that's an important skill that you have to have as a standardized patient, memorization. We're trained, and we're supposed to memorize the specific case particulars. And So what types of roles have you played as a patient? Like what types of diseases have you Um, I've been a patient who has had abdominal pain, um, uh, learned that they are now uh, diabetic, osteoporosis, you name it. (laughs) And that's done a little bit of everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and uh, there have been, as, as we were talking before the interview began, there have been, uh, you've had patients or standardized patients who've come through who've gone on to win Tonys, yeah. right? We do have one form. We actually, we have two people who have won Tonys, one who won one on her own and another who was part of an ensemble that, that won a Tony for a theater group that he worked for. So <clears throat> I can't promise folks who become standardized patients that they will uh, win Tony awards as a result, but... Uh, but we do have some pretty impressive alumni, I guess. Yeah, so, and you don't necessarily have to be have an acting background. You just have to be very um, astute at learning the, the case materials that's presented in the training and also be able to present it in a standardized way. Yeah, I think that's an important point that, that a lot of times people associate standardized patients with you have to be an actor. Um, an actor like Annette certainly has certain advantages because she has skills and a set of understandings of how to portray a person that's really helpful in her portrayals. We've had people who are professionally trained actors who were not really good standardized patients because they didn't understand that this is about education. It's it's not about entertainment. Um, we have folks who have never been on a stage in their life who are fantastic standardized patients. Um, it has to do with understanding that our point here is to help our students learn how to be better communicators. Now, are you trying to present the patient encounter to make it as realistic as possible necessarily? Okay. Yeah, the goal is is, is the, to be realistic, as, as Annette knows. the As the, possible, as, as, as you can be, you know. I mean, there's sure. some things, like in the training, they will give us specific scenarios in terms of um, the present illness. We might They might say to us that if they press here, you're supposed to react this particular way. So you can only do so much, you sure. know. It, it's it's not very invasive. It, we try to do this in a, an environment that's as safe as possible. I think it's very it's, it's very rewarding and very comfortable environment. I know so the students may be nervous, but for the most part, um, it's a very rewarding work from, from a standardized patient perspective. Are the conditions or diseases, are they mostly common things? I mean, you're not, you're not setting things up to try to trick someone. You're trying to... Right. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that's one of the most common misconceptions among students is that there's always a trick and we're always trying to fool them and trick them somehow. Um, the reality is that you can, you can create a simulation of any real-life situation. Some take a lot more work than others because they're a lot more complicated than others. Um, but primarily our goal is to make our students have an opportunity to, to have an encounter that feels just like the real thing. And there really isn't any trick usually, um, other than just different patients are different and, and you need to treat each patient as the individual that they are and, and do what you do and communicate well with each patient wherever they happen to be. Um, we're, we're really never trying to trick anybody. Um, but on the other hand, we're also trying to give them a realistic encounter. Um, so we're not here to give them the answers either. And if they don't do a good job in their communicating, in their history taking, in their physical exam, then they're not going to perform well, just like they don't with a real patient. The difference is my patient, when it's all over, is not really sick, and <laughs> they're going to be fine, and they're going to give the student some feedback so that hopefully when the student encounters a, a similar situation in the, in the real world, um, they don't make the same mistakes, and their patients will hopefully be better better off because they're, they're, their doctors are better trained. Now, do you instruct the um, standardized patients to behave a certain way, like personality-wise? Some of them take on a different persona, maybe? Yeah, it depends. You know, you might be depressed. Okay. Um, and so there's, there's physical 
um, okay. things that go along with being depressed or you just have an upset stomach. And so there's certain things that you have to do in terms of positioning your body. So you want to make the encounter as believable as possible. Um, and, and like St Steve was saying, you know, one of the beautiful things about it in terms of making it very realistic, you know, the standardized patients, they range in age from what, 18 to... What's the oldest? I'm not Six, sure. 16 to about 75. Oh, 16 actually, The youngest to standardized patient I ever had worked for me was eight years old. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> wow. She happened to be my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Steve Harris, who oversees the standardized patient program at Upstate, and Annette Adams-Brown, one of the standardized patients. So, um, Annette, I wanted, what do you get out of... Um, participating in this and you've stuck with it for 15 years so you must enjoy it but well it's very rewarding work to know that you're contributing to the um, educational quality of, of the medical industry and it's very important I think communication plays such a huge role in all walks of life whether you know no matter what your relationship is and, and to play a part in that makes it um, you know, very empowering. You work with the students and when you're sitting there, and a lot of times when we do face-to-face -face, um, feedback, you know, the students, they're very, very uh, appreciative of the work that we do and um, that we allow them to poke and prod us <laughs> and practice. <laughs> but it's not ever in a way where it's painful or it's dangerous. It's a very right. safe environment. So it's, it's extremely rewarding work. And I always say, if you work it, it works. Because I've had an opportunity to actually be examined by a um, medical provider who went through this program. And as a standardized patient, I was in the real world, but I was having a real exam by someone who went through the standardized um, patient clinical skills program, and it was a phenomenal experience, unlike any experience that I've had in the medical industry. Wow, interesting. Well, Steve, I understand you're recruiting for standardized patients. Um, and Okay. And you're looking to, ha you want a diverse group of patients, right, to Absolutely. present to these students. So. Yeah, because our goal is we want to provide our students with, as I said, realistic encounters, and that means the whole, um, the whole range of ages and, and gender and uh, sexual orientation and uh, you know, ethnicity and everything else so that they're seeing um, a population in the standardized patient program that look a lot like the population the they world. see in the real world. Absolutely. So do, do you want children? Do you have an age cut off? Um, we are currently limited to people have to be at least 16 years old okay. for employment at Upstate. Um, uh, or actually the standardized patients are not technically employees of Upstate. We have a contract that we work with, oh, okay. a temp agency. Um and it's a great it's a great setup for everybody. But the, and the simply the New York State laws are that you know you have to be a certain age 16. in order to work. But sixteen is our is sort of our minimum. There is no maximum age. Um, there are no limitations in terms of any other kind of demographic factor because we want every demographic we can get because we never know what case is going to be the next request for us. And the person obviously doesn't have to have an experience uh, with acting. Medical background is unnecessary. Nope. Um, what about English language? Um, English language, it, it, obviously our trainings occur in English, um, and our students are going to interact with them in English. Um, you, so you obviously you have to be able to understand English and, and speak and, and, and read English. Um, but, you know, sometimes we have cases where we, I actually earlier today I got an email from someone wondering about doing a case involving using translators, um, mm -hmm. which is a huge part of medical education for our students in the real world when they're in, in, the, sure. in, the, in, the, in the clinics here at Upstate. They often have patients who, for whom English is not 
their first language or even a language that they have much skill in at all, and they need to learn how to use an interpreter and how to interact with those folks. So um, there, there really are very few limitations in general. Where it becomes a limitation is when we're developing a particular case because if the case calls for a uh, you know, middle-aged female patient, obviously that's going to eliminate an awful lot of the folks who work for me because right. they're 25 years old and, and male. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that kind of stuff is really important um, because we want our patient, we want our students to walk into a room and if their, their chart says the patient's 25 years old and he looks like me, um, <laughs> I'm considerably older than 25 years old and they're going to wonder what kind of a life this guy's been living that he looks like that. And that really is part of evaluating your patient is when you see your patient, you start thinking certain things that, that in terms of, of diagnosing that patient and helping that patient. And if the body sitting in the chair doesn't match that, then it, we're really doing a disservice to our students. Well, what's the best way for someone who's interested to learn more about the program? I know your website seems like it's full of information at upstate.edu slash standard patient. Great place. That's probably the best place to go and find information, um, a little bit of information in general about standardized patients and about us specifically. Uh, it's also where our application page is, so there's a little um, um, an application uh, video that you can watch and then some questions that we ask, and then it's sent to us, and then uh, we take it from there. And uh, folks who, are, who seem to be interested and have the basic skills of being able to follow the, our, our, our video um, are then invited to come and, and learn more about being a standardized patient and eventually become standardized patients. Well, well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate the information. My guests have been standardized patient Annette Adams-Brown, and we also have the director of Upstate's Clinical Skills Center, Steve Harris. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, what you need to know about Medicare. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Medicare is the government's health insurance plan for people age 65 and older, mostly, but also certain younger people with disabilities. It, it can be confusing. So we have here in the HealthLink studio, Myrna Colden. She's been the aging services specialist and the HICAP coordinator for the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services for more than 10 years. Thank you for being here, Myrna. My pleasure. The acronym HICAP, H-I-I-C-A-P, um, it stands for Health Insurance Information Counseling and Assistance. So what, what is that? HICAP is a statewide program that helps people on Medicare primarily with their health insurance questions, concerns, problems. Um, we provide free, confidential, unbiased assistance. We don't sell anything. We don't direct anybody to any plans. We provide them with the information so they can make a knowledgeable decision. So meant to be educational. So 
Absolutely. Great. Well, um, now I know there's Medicare Parts A, B, C, and D. Can you kind of give a summary of what each one is? Certainly. It is confusing for people. There are only two parts of Medicare that come from the federal government, and that's Medicare Parts A and B. Medicare Parts A covers inpatient hospital and uh, post-hospital nursing home stay for rehab. Medicare Part B covers doctors, durable medical equipment, and lab tests. Medicare Part C, which is through private insurance companies, are Medicare Advantage plans that cover everything Medicare covers, but in a different cost structure. And they also may offer additional benefits, such as hearing, vision, dental, or even membership in a fitness center. And membership in Medicare Part D covers drugs, that's prescription drugs that people would get at the pharmacy. So D is easy to remember, D for drugs, but the others you just have to sort of learn. I guess. And now, C and D would be different depending on what state you live in? That's correct. A and B would be the same no matter where you are. C and D, it can even vary from county. It depends which plans contract into that county. Interesting. All right. Well, um, what sorts of questions do you hear from people most often? Where does, where does the confusion lie? The confusion lies with the fact that there are so many medis. There's Medicare, Medicaid, Medigap, Medicare Advantage. So people are very confused about their options. Uh, People also coming from a a job, going into Medicare when they retire can be very confusing because there are so many options out there. All right. Well, you mentioned Medicaid, and I always try to remind myself the aid. Aid is for the the needy, um, Medicaid. But we're talking about Medicare today. So within Medicare, there's a lot of options for people. What, What how do you advise them? Well, it's interesting because everybody is different. So people need to do what they feel is best for themselves, not what's best for their spouse or their best friend or neighbor down the street. Um, some people want to stay with original Medicare um, and then get a Medicare Part D prescription drug plan. And if a person does not have what they call creditable prescription coverage and they don't get a Part D, they would be hit with a penalty somewhere down the road. Um, so that's one option. The other option is a Medicare Advantage plan, and many of those include drug coverage, and they're a package plan that would cover everything Medicare Part A covers, Part B covers, and the D also, as well as the extra advantage of those extra benefits. Now, you mentioned not doing this for, you know, what's good for your spouse and might not be good for you. So Medicare is individual. It's not for a couple. That's true. It's not, there's no such thing as family coverage. Each individual has different needs, whether it be prescriptions or their health needs. So each individual has to decide for themselves what's best for them. Once you choose one plan, are you stuck with that one for life, or do you get a chance to change it every year? Every year between October 15th and December 7th is the general open enrollment period. It starts the first of the following year. But there are also a number of special enrollment periods that during the year we can assist people with switching to another plan if the plan they have does not work for them. Now, I've heard the term um, supplemental coverage. Is that the same thing as Medigap? Yes, a supplemental plan is a Medigap plan. It's through private insurance companies. It supplements Medicare Parts A and B, and it works with original Medicare. Um, It covers 
the Medicare A and B co-payments um, that a person would have. So theoretically, they would have no bills from the hospital, no bills from the doctor. They tend to be costly. They average around $150 to $200 a month, but a person may find it beneficial for them. So a Medicare plan is not going to cover all of the health expenses that a person might have after age 65, right? That's true. Medicare Part A has a deductible, and this year it's 1340 per benefit period, and a benefit period starts the day someone goes in the hospital and 60 days after they've left the hospital or skilled nursing. And that is a benefit period that can accumulate during the year. So if someone went in the hospital in January and went back in July, they would have another $1,340 deductible. Medicare Part B also has an annual deductible, and that deductible is $183. Once they meet their deductible, then Medicare pays 80%, and the patient pays 20%. So there's still going to be some, could be sizable expenses for someone. Um, and, and that's where the Medicap policies come into play? Or? And that's where a Medigap plan would assist people because they could pay those co-payments and deductibles for the individual. Gotcha. Now, does Medicaid, are, are people on Medicaid and Medicare ever? Yes, people can be on Medicare and Medicaid. They're called dual eligibles. And there are some Medicare Advantage plans that are set up specifically for people who are dual eligibles um, that coordinate with the Medicaid program very well. So it sounds like you already said individualized. I mean, this really does matter for an individual person to get some guidance in making their selection, it sounds like. Yes, it can get very complicated for people. All right. Well, um, now what's going on with the new Medicare cards? Up until now, the Medicare cards have had a Social Security number, usually the um, the persons, the beneficiaries, or it could be their spouses, because it is the wage earners, with a suffix letter afterwards explaining who the re- what the relationship is. The new Medicare cards, which started coming out uh, the beginning of August 2018 to people in New York State, have an 11-digit identifier uppercase letters and numbers, so it will no longer be tied to a Social Security number. So when the person gets the new card, they should notify their um, providers so that it gets billed correctly. Um, nobody will call them about their card. They should not give information on about their old Social Security number, Medicare claim number, and there's no charge for the card. It will come out automatically, and most people in New York State should have it by the end of September or so. And it'll just arrive in the mail? It will arrive in the mail, and again, they could destroy their old card and give the providers their new identifier. So is this um, generally sort of a security measure to take the Social Security number off of a card? Absolutely. For so many years, people have asked for that Social Security number to be removed from their card um, because if a wallet gets stolen, they would uh, set themselves up for identity theft by having the person's Social Security number address yeah, so this should be much safer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Myrna Colden from the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services about Medicare. So I wanted to ask you if you have information that can help people save money on Medicare. 
There are a number of programs that can help people save money. The first that I want to mention is New York State EPIC. That's for people who are New York State residents, age 65 and over, who have a Medicare Part D plan. They do have an income limit, which is $75,000 for an individual and $100,000 for a married couple, and it can help reduce the prescription Part D premium as well as prescription costs. Uh, the second program is through Social Security Administration. It's called Extra Help Low Income Subsidy. Um, there's an income and resource limit, um, but it could help reduce the cost of the Part D premium as well as prescriptions. It can do away with the deductible on the Medicare Part D plan and also the coverage gap. Um, there's also a program through the Medicaid office called Medicare Savings Program where the state would pay the Medicare Part B premium, so that 134 would not come out of somebody's um, Social Security uh, benefit, and they'd get their full benefit. Um, and if somebody's eligible for that, they also get full extra help low-income subsidy. The Medicare Savings Program is based on income alone, and we have information in our office on both those programs. Okay. All right. Now, also, is there a cost advantage if you choose one of these um Advantage plans instead of going with tra tra traditional Medicare, can you save money if you choose an HMO or a PPO plan? Actually, to get a Medicare Advantage plan, you still have to have Medicare Part A and B, but you can save money because some of the plans are zero premium, so you're not paying anything extra for a Medicare Part D prescription drug plan. Plus, you might get those extra benefits of dental, vision, hearing, or membership in a fitness center. Um, people do have to be aware, though, if they have an HMO, a PPO, or what we call private fee-for-service plan, each plan has may have its own restrictions. So you have to kind of read the fine print. You have to make sure that your doctors accept it, the labs you go to accept it, the area you live in, if you travel, that may affect it. So people have to be, again, very individualized. They have to know what their needs are, and we could assist them with that. So what about the drug coverage? I've, I've read that there may be some changes um, coming that might make that more expensive for people. Actually, um, they're doing away with the coverage gap. It was supposed to be gone in 2020, now it's going to be gone in 2019. So that may save people some money. What's the coverage gap? The there are four stages of a Medicare Part D plan. There's the deductible stage, the initial coverage, the coverage gap, which used to be called the donut hole, mm -hmm. and catastrophic. And in each stage, a person pays a different amount for their prescriptions. And the coverage gap when the Medicare Part D first came out was quite substantial. And since 2010, it's been slowly reduced. Um, it's a stage where people may pay a higher amount for their prescriptions. Initially, they didn't feel that many people would get into the coverage gaps. But we know the prescription costs have gone up, so more people tend to reach the gap stage. But with it being reduced, it should save people money. Good. That's good news. Well, how do you suggest people find assistance for help choosing Medicare coverage? Well, if you live in uh, Onondaga County, you could call Onondaga County Office for Aging. Uh, our phone number is 315-435-2362, and my direct extension is 4944. We can assist. If you live in a different county, you could call your county's uh, Office for Aging each county has a high-cap program that can assist people. Okay. You could also call Medicare directly, and Medicare can be of assistance to you as well. And their phone number is 1-800-633-4227. 
Social Security Administration is where you would sign up for your Medicare, and their phone number is 1-800-772-1213. And there's also the Medicare Rights Center, which has a consumer hotline. This is a um, not-for-profit that can assist people with their Medicare issues, and their number is 1-800-333-4114, and that's their consumer hotline. All right, and we'll make sure to include those on our website at HealthLink. Uh, on air.org as well. Now, how early should people begin? Um, Does everyone qualify on their 65th birthday? Is that how it works? People are eligible for Medicare when they turn 65. Generally, it's the first of the month they turn 65. Um, If they're still working, they may or may not need to sign up for Medicare. Um, I usually suggest they give me a call. We could talk about it, or they could talk to somebody in their HR department who may be able to advise them. But generally for somebody going on to Medicare, um, somebody retiring, we suggest that they call maybe three or four months ahead so they have time to review all their options. Okay, three or four months ahead if they're looking at that. Now, are there disabilities that may qualify someone for earlier coverage? If somebody is getting Social Security disability, no matter what their disability is, on their 25th month of receiving Social Security disability, they become eligible for Medicare, and they'll get their Medicare card about three months prior to that. If they have ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, they can get Medicare much sooner, and if they have kidney problems, renal failure, uh, if they're going to have a kidney transplant, they can get Medicare earlier as well. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for, this is a lot of information, very educational. I appreciate it. Uh, My guest has been Myrna Colden from the Onondaga County Department of Adult and Long-Term Care Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Beverly Boyd is co-author of the poetry collection, Where Our Palms Rest, available from Coalesce Press. She has new poems forthcoming in Illiston Press and Slant. Her poem, Tis New to Me, reminds us to hold on to the awe we often have when first recovering our health. The poem begins with an epigraph from The Tempest. How many goodly creatures are there here, O brave new world! With blinds open, morning lights awash in violet, lawns and houses freshly dipped as in a tub of dye. Across the bay, a sailboat glides in mauve. Midday, hazy sunlights drained the violet, I watch a sparrow survey his golden world. His mate hops to a lower branch, looks up, flies past to a higher limb. Together they abandon Brazilian pepper boughs tipped with buds, bees a buzz. Nearby, ballooning spiders hurl streaks of silver into the sky, electric in light and breeze, while flies ascend invisible ladders, reaching through the silken spider threads blown up to second-story trees. Inside, as if at war with gloom, 
Lightsabers brandish their light, no heat, from the temporal side of my corrected eye. Later, light flickers like firing fluorescent tubes until the pulses slow as I absorb today's extremes so I may see these tints again when habit replaces awe. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new type of transplant that can help people with diabetes. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.